Hello and welcome to the Rebel Chronicles, a show taking a look at snippets of revolutionary history. My name's Paul Case. So, in the last episode, I talked about the Paris Commune, a revolutionary government that took control of Paris in 1871 for 72 days before it was brutally crushed by the French army. Uh, This episode's going to begin by following one of the most famous participants of the Commune, so if you haven't listened to the first episode and would like a broader frame of reference, have a listen to that first. Otherwise, let's continue. Uh, Louise Michel was a renowned orator, writer, feminist and radical. Growing up in a liberal household in the Haute-Marte region of France, she was imbued with an independent spirit and creativity from an early age. As a young adult, she took up teaching, one of the very few job options in the 19th century that could guarantee independent survival. Her teaching style for the time was unorthodox. She taught children with learning disabilities and also taught disabled alongside more able children. She brought animals into class so the students could interact with nature. An avid reader and writer herself, she nurtured creativity in young people. Although this approach was looked upon with scepticism by her peers, some reluctantly had to admit that it produced positive results. In 1865, Michelle was 26. By this time, she could just about afford to follow her dream of moving to Paris. She moved to a slum on the northern outskirts of Paris, an area teeming with revolutionary fervour. Famous contemporary radical thinkers such as Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon and Mikhail Bakunin loom large in the minds of the discontented. Like so many before and since who have moved to cities, Michel found clusters of kindred spirits, rebels, writers, philosophers, and threw herself into the artistic and political life of Paris. By the time the Commune was established in 1871, Michelle was primed for it, enthusiastically embedding herself into the day-to-day workings of revolution. She was a part of the volunteer ambulance service, helped arrange childcare, and, as a leading voice among women's organisations, put forward demands for equal pay and defended sex workers against stigmatism. I never went to bed during that time, she stated. I only napped a little when there was nothing better to do. She was also a willing soldier, knowing that if the reactionary forces are armed, the revolutionary ones must be armed too. I loved the cannon, the smell of gunpowder and grape shot in the air, she wrote. She even offered to assassinate Adolphe Thiers, the leader of the newly established reactionary government in Versailles, but was dissuaded as it would inevitably invite brutal retaliation. But Michelle could hardly be dissuaded from her defence of the revolution when the retaliation came calling anyway. During the Commune's final stand against the French army, she took to the barricades with rifle in hand as bodies fell around her. By the end of the week, 25,000 people had been massacred by the army. It was only when her mother was taken hostage that Michelle handed herself in. On December 16th, 1871, she went to trial. The time in prison only seemed to strengthen her resolve, 
and the sight of her friends, loved ones and comrades being systematically killed painfully reminded her of what governments are prepared to do to establish their authority. She was in a state of grieving, friends and dreams lost to summary executions. In such an intense emotional state, it's hardly surprising that someone of her ferocious independence refused to capitulate in front of the military courts. She ended her final court statement by seething, If you are not cowards, kill me. The courts knew that Michelle was respected and influential. They also knew that respected and influential radicals are arguably more dangerous dead than alive. Refusing to give her martyrdom, she was sent to the sticky South Pacific penal colony of New Caledonia, along with around 4,000 other communards. It was a four-month boat trip away. She was detained for two years before she left. Arriving in 1873, she would stay there for over six years. New Caledonia had been officially colonised by the French government in 1853. Typical to colonial systems we see the world over, the indigenous Melanesian population, having lived there for thousands of years, had their land stolen and were socially, politically and economically marginalised, creating an inequality between indigenous and non-indigenous populations that still exist today. Increasingly aggressive land grabs had disrupted the agricultural system the Melanesians were dependent on for food. The French government sold off cheap plots of land to encourage immigration and economic stimulation, leading to absentee ownership and the land going to waste. Reserves have been created for the indigenous population, which were far too small to continue their traditional methods of producing food. Women were kidnapped and enslaved by colonists. The whole process displayed a complete disregard for the lives of indigenous people and their culture. Resistance to the colonial regime was sporadic, resistance that was invariably suppressed with ruthless brutality. Intuitively aligning herself with the oppressed, Michelle began fighting for the indigenous cause. She began to learn their language, listen to their stories and developed a respect for their culture. She recognised the French government's lineage of violence had spread far past its borders, and she knew too that, on top of this, European colonisation dripped with racism. Unfortunately, while many of her fellow deported radicals hated the French government as much as her, it turned out that most of them were instilled with the same racism as their captors. For example, when the prisoners decided to put on a play, Michelle's idea of having an indigenous orchestra was quashed by the Committee of Light Classical Theatre. Now, it seems bizarre to have something like the Committee of Light Classical Theatre on a remote island, but it evidences that, as predominantly white prisoners, they were colonisers too, who couldn't resist bringing a little bit of European self-satisfaction with them. It all came to a head in 1878, when Chief Atai decided to unite the disparate indigenous clans. Desperate and resentful, they set about organising an insurrection. They met in the utmost secrecy. Their initial objective was to capture the capital, Numia, on the 24th of September, the anniversary of the colonisation, 
but this date was compromised on the 19th of June when a white ex-convict and his Melanesian wife were murdered by Melanesians. According to a contemporary Australian news source, some indigenous people were demanding for the wife to be returned to her clan, which leaves the consensual nature of the marriage open to question. Regardless, an altercation followed, which resulted in the killing of the ex-convict, his wife and their family. In response, the authorities immediately rounded up a group of Melanesians, arrested them and held them hostage until the murderers gave themselves up. Even though the murders had nothing directly to do with the Plan Rebellion, in such a hysterical climate the indigenous conspirators were forced to act sooner than expected. Without preparation, taking the capital was lost, so they decided to attack several colonial settlements on the west coast. With over two decades of pain on their shoulders, the Melanesian rebels came out fighting. Over the next few days, the insurrectionists went from settlement to settlement, killing white colonists and police, reducing settlements to ashes in their wake. Startled, the French government mobilised their campaign to stop the insurrection. Initially troubled by the rebels' guerrilla strategies and expert knowledge of the land, the army eventually managed to recruit rival Melanesian clans to help them fight the insurgents. They closed in, launching surprise attacks and, slowly but surely, by December 1878, the rebellion was defeated. Reprisals were vicious. More territory was gobbled up by the colonial powers. Indigenous people were executed without trial. By the end, around 200 Europeans and a 1,000 Melanesians were killed. Chief Atai was beheaded. His severed head sent to Paris and put on display in Paris's first anthropological museum as a colonial trophy. It would not be returned to New Caledonia until 2014. He is still considered by many Melanesians to be a hugely significant figure and a martyr for their continuing struggle for independence. Louise Michel fully supported the rebellion, although she did not directly fight in it but she recognised the same systems of violent oppression in New Caledonia as she witnessed in the final days of the Paris Commune. She wrote, The strength and longing of human hearts was shown again, but the whites shot the rebels as we were mown down. In 1879, the French authorities allowed her to move to Numea, where she continued to teach. Her radicalism always infused with her teaching, she taught black and white children as equals. She continued to protest against colonial injustice. Even on a remote island in the Pacific, she was unstoppably active. In the same year, she was offered a reduction in her sentence, which she initially refused, but in July 1880, the French government gave amnesty to deported members of the commune. In early November, she arrived back in Paris to the familiar European winters, a heroine's welcome and the chance to continue the struggle. To those who demand a fairer society, Louise Michel has become a legend whose legacy has refused to dwindle over time. 
to those who wished to maintain the status quo at any cost. She was derided as an unmarried woman, an upstart, a loudmouth, and simply plain trouble. I can imagine Michelle smiling at every insult, knowing that it was proof she was doing something right. If you'd like to find out more about Louise Michelle and her fascinating life, I highly recommend reading her edition of the Rebel Live series, which is a great compilation of historical essays and Michelle's own writings. For more information about the new Caledonian struggle for independence, the short documentary We Are Rebels can be found on YouTube, and it's a fantastic starting point. My name is Paul Case, and thank you for listening to the Rebel Chronicles. If you want to contact me and correct my mispronunciations, historical inaccuracies and woeful research, please email captainoftherant at riseup.net. So we're going to play you out with a song now and we're going to finish up on Bikini Kill's Statement of Vindication. <laughs>